Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, the podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Omari Everett Phillips, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Studsnick about her new book, The Geography of Hate, The Great Migration Through Small Town America. Dr. Jennifer Studsnick, welcome to the show. Hi, Omari, and thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. I, I do as well. And I just wonder if you could begin the interview uh, just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. So I was actually born behind the Iron Curtain. So that means I grew up in um, then recently reunited Germany. So these circumstances early on in life instilled, I would say, a keen sense of justice in me. Because what that means, that being from East Germany, I always felt inadequate whenever I found myself in situations that that called for interactions with people from West Germany. So when I toured the country as a competitive chess player in my youth um, and spent, you know, considerable amount of time in West Germany, people there were quick to, you know, express their disdain for me um, because they couldn't sense my East German background be it the accent or the attire, it was obvious to them that I was of no Eastern means. So to give you background, there was a time when Westerners considered Easterners mooches of the Western wealth, given that um, East Germany was economically stagnant compared to the industrialized West. So since then, I've always found myself identifying with um, the marginalized and the oppressed. So my heroes soon became liberation struggle activists, human and civil rights advocates, um, not forgetting those who tell their stories. So I think that instilled the passion in me to become a storyteller of like Elk. And I think one of the earliest and perhaps most influential books that I read during my early teens um, that did leave a deep impression on me and set the course of becoming such a storyteller was Alexander's Roots. Um, the story of his own family and their destinies traced back all the way to Gunther Kinte, right? Um, and I believe that you can see the influence that this book had on me in the way I celebrate Black resilience in the vignettes of most chapters in the geography of hate, because I share with the readers the histories of Black Hoosiers that escaped erasure by the white communities that they called home, despite the enmity that they faced from their white neighbors, right? Um, so I could go on telling you about all my background like study wise I don't know if that's too detailed that's a question now off the record <laughs> yeah you absolutely can yeah we'd love to hear it okay great um so you know eventually I would go on to pursue a bachelor's in American studies um, at the Humboldt University in Berlin um and I wrote my thesis on lynching and the poetry of LinkedIn use, the great African-American writer of masterpieces of artful expositions on Black trauma in the face of white supremacy. Um, and then after that, I pursued my master's in the same field 
and wrote about the essential archetypes of motherhood in the fight against hate crimes. Lens through Mamita Mobley, Judy Shepard, and the like, right? The legacy of whom we now unfortunately see in the 21st century struggles against police brutality, the plights and fights of the Black mothers in the aftermath, all the, the tragic losses of their children, you know, like Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, Sabrina Fulton, mother of Trayvon Martin, and so on and so forth, right? Um, so then, um, ultimately, I went to Purdue University to pursue my PhD in American Studies, where I then was able to devote my research efforts to telling these untold stories um, of the Great Migration and how Black migrants from both slavery, Jim Crow South, ended up nearly exclusively in that urban north, allegedly, while Middle American lands that they traversed remained nearly exclusively white, allegedly. So out of this whole labor and challenging and exploration came the geography I paid, and here we are. Wonderful. So let's talk about this book. How how did you come to this project? I guess I said, um, for me, uh, the question, um, I think I already mentioned that in the previous uh, um, paragraph or um, soliloquy, um, the question about the Great Migration, that it comes from the rural south to the urban north, was somehow very incomplete and very unlikely for me. So I wanted to dig deeper uh, because I understood that leaving uh, the oppressive part behind, but changing your career um, at the same time, I didn't really buy it. And so I think what unfolded um, during my discovery is um, hopefully uh, well laid out in the book um, that there is way more than that master narrative of the wool South to the urban North that we all know as the great migration narrative, right? Um, and I think, um, it's always nice to complicate the story a bit. Absolutely. So I wonder, can you tell us like how academics have like previously written about the lack of like small town migration by Black folks that were uh, engaged in the Great Migration? And what ways does your work, or do you hope that your work sort of challenges challenges the that analysis? Great question. I actually, I think academics didn't write much about it at all. <laughs> um, so I think in general, these great migration narratives that we know, uh, they focus on leaving this oppressive sharecropping South um, to achieve full citizenship rights in the North. But uh, in the in their zeal to frame this migration phenomenon within that urban context of the North, I think scholars seem to have overlooked the fact that the North is actually more than, you know, big cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, New York City, and so on. But um, the problem is that if you equate the Great Migration with the urban north, um, you don't ever ask that question, where to, right? Um, which then happens to um, um, overlook places like small town America in the Midwest, um, with this underlying assumption and generalization that all migrants went to the cities. Um, I'm not saying that they didn't, but um, that exclusive destination um, 
was not only, and I'm saying it wasn't only scholars now, it was also scholars then while the migration was going on, um, whether they published academically or journalistically, um, cities were the only destination. There was no other alternative. Um, and what that did and does was that the experiences and interactions in the small town Midwest that black migrants had, they somehow became uh, invisible. They remained hidden, uh, which then allowed these white communities to manifest whiteness as a way of life. Um, so I think if scholars discussed migration to smaller uh, locales, um, the time frame usually preceded the Great Migration, which is usually dated to have started around 1915. Um, and I think maybe most famously, uh, Rings, Irving Painter's exploration of the Exodus to Kansas um, in like post reconstruction uh, times. And then maybe uh, Jack Blocker's Black Migration to Small Town Midwest. Uh, but both of these um, works uh, are around the late 19th century. Um, however, Jake Blocker also explored uh, the Great Migration in four Midwestern small towns in a book called A Little More Freedom. Um, but I think, without toting my horn too much, the geography of fate might be one of the first uh, to contextualize the event, the events in one Midwestern state. And I think that focus on like one state in particular allowed me to explore and analyze spatial temporally um, on a wider scale, like when it comes to social, historical, con uh, cultural, political climate, and so on and so forth. Uh, which I think resulted in uncovering and unearthing some of those hidden legacies and mechanisms that uh, of white supremacy in that region. Um, so I think I was able to provide a valuable counter narrative to uh, Blocker's work um, because I think Blocker's main argument was that anti-black violence alone um, ultimately caused blacks black uh, Midwesterners to relocate to the larger cities. Um, and I think my story complicated it a little more and also showed some additional reasons beyond the anti-black violence. And what are some of those additional reasons beyond sort of anti-black violence? Um, I think um, in the book, I have um, three main manifestations um, of this, um, what I I call white resistance, or sometimes I call it white desires or white spatial desires. And so the three that I explore in the book were erasure, silence, and memories. So erasure um, of Black traces in their communities, um, as evidenced by omitting uh, black community members from public memorials or destroying black spaces altogether illustrates how Indiana communities, I would say, mastered erasure uh, to the extent that residents now do not even recall that their county ever had a black history, right? Um, silence, in contrast, actually 
refers to the white past of the county. So where, whereas erasure is uh, erasing the black past, silence is uh, keeping quiet um, on the white past. Um, and so it delineates how I would say they deliberately overlooked that they once had white supremacist organization, vigilante organizations, sundown town policies, and the like, all of which contributed to securing this all-white environment for decades, right? Erasure and silence, both of these strategies then influence memories and the selective nature of memories, because these white communities in the Midwest, in, in the small towns, they were free to stereotype, objectify, criminalize non-white individuals because there was no one ever kind of, you know, pushing back against it. And so breaking down all these mechanisms, um, the book enables to expose the, the logic of white supremacy in small town America, if that, you know, encapsulates it best. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, as you sort of mentioned, this work focuses on Indiana uh, and focuses sort of primarily on the Midwest. Um, and I know that's a point of contention amongst a lot of academics. So how, how do you sort of describe the, the Midwest or define the Midwest in this work? Yes, I didn't even go and try to explore who and what is Midwestern and Midwest. Because yes, that that um, discussion and contention uh, requires a book on its own. But I think the U.S. Census Bureau incorporates like 13 states in grouping the region, the Midwest. I, in contrast, only refer to the five states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin when I refer to the Midwest. And I base that classification on the Northwest Ordinance from 1787, which established a territorial government for the land north and west of the Ohio River, and that incorporated these five later to become states. So in that sense, they were the first Midwestern region before the label Midwest had actually been coined and before scholars um, and community members were having serious fights on if they are Midwest or not, right? <laughs> And so funny enough, because the Midwest has a very interesting position in American society, scholarly and um, in the communities. But I find myself agreeing with scholars who claim that the Midwest or small town America, for that matter, is quintessentially American. Um, but unlike most scholars who actually claim that the region is the epitome of American exceptionalism, I contend and I argue in the book that it is quintessentially American because it's a microcosmic community that struggles over questions of belonging that are also characteristic of the larger U.S. society. So like the nation at large, these communities on a smaller scale respond to these struggles along racial and ethnic lines upholding the color line and demarcating boundaries for racial and ethnic outers, outsiders, right? right? So I think despite the regional application to the Midwest uh, or particularly Indiana, 
um, the geography of aid pervades the nation and the geographical fo uh, focus simply enabled tracing the breadth and depth of that legacy of exclusion and hatred. And can you define to us what, what is the geography of hate? Uh, thanks for the question. <laughs> I think um, that's a question that many of the readers might have too, and I hope it, it comes through in the book. Uh, but the concept of the geography of hate functions as a theoretical framework, very academically speaking, right? But also as a visual manis manifestation of exclusion and hate. So at the most basic level, um, it maps and makes visible white spaces. Um, these white inhabitants in those white spaces, they acted on their um, white desires and and manifested and constructed their own environments as all white. So sometimes um, they manifested their desires in public uh, by literally demarcating certain sections in towns or, or neighborhoods um, of colors with street names, right? Um, in other instances, they used the, the mere power of their words and encouraged or threatened people of color to leave the town. So most of the actions and acts that I describe in the book are very subtle, I would argue, but all of them, they demonstrate a possessive investment in, in whiteness uh, because they claim the entire town or a county as their whites only space. Um, so while, while I'm ca capturing these instances, I think I spatialize hate in, in various shapes and forms. And I use uh, geography like as a space, as a place, um, as a, as a location in the physical materiality, but also the imaginative, imaginative configuration to, to show how like spaces is racialized, but also to locate black history in those white spaces. Um, so I would, I would say, well, even though I include discussions of like very um, visceral acts and of physical violence that people commonly associate with the concept of, of uh, hate, like lynchings, KKK cross burnings, most of the Incidents described in the book do not qualify for that definition. Some might even challenge me that the word hate is way too strong to describe these, these insidious acts of bigotry and discrimination that that characterize these everyday everyday encounters between whites and people of color in small town America, right? But I think that these white desires, um, and how they manifested and proliferated, mostly hidden and invisibly in these small town communities, it actually demands a strong phrase um, to, to, to call out these attitudes and mechanisms, but also to show uh, the detrimental long-term effects that these white desires have on, on communities far beyond their small town borders. Um, so I kind of interrupted the unmarked and unnamed nature of violence and hate in those 
spaces. Um, I, I think I interrupted the whitewashing of that white racist history um, and stopped, or, or at least I hope that I um, challenged the exculpation um, that the white communities engaged in. Um, so in short, I think it's just my book names them and makes them visible, which I think hasn't been done or hasn't been done enough beforehand. And so in this work, you you combine this like extensive archival research with these interviews that you do with individuals, right? So can you take us through what was the process of your research like? What what sort of sources did you use? And then also lastly, like what what were these interviews that you conducted like? A great question. I mean, correct. I do use a combination of quite uh, different um, methods and methodologies and have a gazillion uh, <laughs> sources that I could talk about right now. But let's try to just um, highlight a few. So in general, I think I use a combination of archival, geospatial, and ethnographic research methods um, to understand the legacies of white supremacies on a macro, meso, but also a micro level, right? Um, so archival research allowed me to provide a more holistic overview of race relations in the state of Indiana, um, rather than just presenting the findings of one community. So, for example, I discovered this unprocessed collection um, in the Indiana Historical Society, uh, the Black History Project, uh, which attempted to trace Black history on a county level. Um, so this way I was able to cover almost the entire state because while not much Black history was actually included in those files, they disclosed a lot about the white attitudes in the different counties. Um, so then having that archival wealth, um, geospatial research methods, primarily GIS mapping, um, then allowed me to visualize these findings and map incidents of hate. Uh, so the maps that I included in the book generally served to get a better understanding of the widespread nature of white violence, but also black resilience across time and space. Um, so, for example, besides mapping incidents of lynching in the state, I also included maps that juxtaposed um, Indiana's black population and the growth with green book locations, um, or um, I included maps that show the growth of the National Forestry Detective Association um, over time um, to, to illustrate right, black resilience and, and white violence. Uh, so then, of course, the ethnographic research components, um, they consisted of participant observation during community events in which I, you know, became part of these um, events and encounters, but also semi-structured interviews with community members. And given the town's demographic or the county's demographic, the majority of inter internal leaders were white. Uh, but I think my whiteness actually opened the doors to their homes and their memories because the I really noticed the longer the interview went on, the more my white participants felt like they were talking to their own kind because it was my my white face, right, that, that smiled and nodded and listened closely. Um, and so... 
you you share a lot more uh, when you feel like you are amongst your own. Of course, my whiteness also mattered for uh, the people of color that I interviewed, because then when I had any kind of hypothetical scenario, uh, what if I were to move to town? <laughs> I mean, it was a hypothetical question, but nevertheless, my whiteness was still the center of attention in that hypothesis, right? Um, so um, I think <laughs> to summarize it, they were interesting to say the least. Um, on both ends, like every um, individual that I interviewed um, added tremendously to that understanding that I wanted to achieve, uh, which is not scapegoating or blaming the one individual about their attitudes, but rather really getting at this is what the community at large, what the town feels like. I was trying to personify town and community, and that's always hard to do. But if I, if you are able to distance yourself from that one individual that you are interviewing and you put it on that larger um, picture with the community, um, you can actually um, get a little bit closer to what a town, uh, a small town, thinks. Um, to give you an example, um, it, even though it was an individual speaking, there were moments of pride in the town community that were always emphasized, right? Whereas, you know, some of the less proud moments in history never really came up or they came up completely um, on the defensive end um, after the interview was over or sometimes in a follow-up encounter when we bumped into each other and, you know, I mentioned X, Y, Z of my latest finding and I said, no, 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 this is not happening here. But, you know, so so that's what I mean with it's not the individual that told me their story, but rather I was able to encapsulate what, what the town thinks or doesn't think, what this town values or doesn't value. So at least that's what I was hoping my interviews and and my analysis thereof uh, contributed to the books. And um, I know that you're thinking of this in terms of sort of the the town and the community. But are there were there any individual interviews that stood out to you? Um, I think they stood out on yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, did they stand out? Yes. There were a couple of folks that uh, were clearly um, racist. Um, that again felt a certain sense of entitlement to share that with a white interviewer. Um, others were, um, they had racist connotations, but they were more based on ignorance and, um, and, and the, the fact that they never engaged much with the topic, um, not to excuse them. And then there were others that were, um, let me share a positive example, actually. There were a couple of interviews that were excessively long, like five hours long, which is which is a really long time and and really takes a bit toll. But um, individuals, they wanted to share history. They, they wanted to uh, share what they remember, also the less proud moments but they've never felt they had an outlet. And so if here I am, this academician that's coming in and is interested in learning about my town. So they just opened their 
memory lanes and took me down and, and had pictures and postcards and like everything you could imagine. Um, I just hope that maybe these conversations that we had were an impetus and an encouragement to share it within their town communities and not just this academic or that walks in, right? So, but actually share it with your neighborhood, share it with the people that currently live there so that history doesn't repeat itself, that people are aware of what once happened here, right? Um, to kind of um, interject. Um, so I think that there are a lot of positive moments. I, I started with the negative ones, so maybe I shouldn't have, but um Everyone has these moments, right? Like everyone where you're just like completely um, dumbfounded and you have to be very professional to uh, continue conversations. So that's why when you ask, the, oh, is that one that stands out? That one is the one, of course, the one that jumps to your head immediately. Um, but really, I shouldn't have started with that because the, 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 the positive ones actually outweigh some of those negative examples. And so you you brought up the the Black History Project as one of the archives uh, sources uh, source bases that you used. Um, can you tell us about their survey that they conducted of different counties um, and how this sort of connects to the type of active forgetting that you talked about sort of earlier and that you write about in chapter three? Yes. So I think I mentioned that um, the Black History Project is an unprocessed uh, collection. Um, in the Indiana Historical Society. And it it was experimental because when they conducted it, they weren't really sure what they were doing with it, the direction they want to take with it, which I think why 30 years, 30 plus years later, it's still an unprocessed collection um, because they weren't sure what they would find and what to do with it. Um, but I think it, it, it serves to preserve the collective memories of Indiana counties as it pertains to the Black experience. Um, and it does shed light, like the survey has questions that shed lights on, on laws and policies, but also um, white values and attitudes regarding Black Hoosiers. At least that's how I interpreted um, the survey responses. Um, so... I actually use the responses, no matter how expansive they were, um, as a as a reminder that personal but also collective memories are constructed, and so we only get a a partial picture um, and selective knowledge of county pasts, right? Um, and to get back to this active forgetting, so that's an example of how erasure became a tool of white dominance. Um, and I, I, I swear some communities uh, explored and discussed in the book, they have mastered erasure to the degree that county residents, and that includes the survey respondents, they have actively forgotten that they have had a Black history. Um, so in the survey responses, to give you an example, there's either the outright denial or the, the, the proclamation that they've ever had a history, uh, a Black history, which of course can easily be dismantled when you look at the census data. I mean, it, you know, like that's the easiest way to dismantle it. It doesn't take a lot of time to just look at some census records to say, well, you told me you don't have a Black history, but I can see people 
of color in your community in those respective decades. Um, so in chapter three, I think I have uh, quite a few of those examples that I that just mentioned, um, but I also gave some specific examples of um, the community that's the focus throughout the book um, and share how community members, but also newspaper outlets constantly and consistently applied active forgetting. Um, so for example, uh, to give you a newspaper example, um, after World War I, uh, local black soldiers returned to town, uh, but the local paper just didn't consider it noteworthy to report on their black hometown heroes returning, which is a stark contrast to the white counterparts that were frequently celebrated and their war-related activities were widely circulated in, in the paper, right? Um, but the local paper never printed any of the letters from abroad um, or covered when, they, when Black service members were injured or died or when they returned home. Um, so honoring uh, Clinton County service members in word and picture never encompassed Black service members. Uh, similarly, the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church that existed in uh, Frankfurt for uh, close to 100 years, it had been in place for more than four decades before it was even first included in the Papers Church Directory. Church directory in 1927. Um, and that alone is already um, a perfect example of how you omit or actively forget or contribute to erasing the Black presence in town, if, if that makes sense, right? Um, I think I, I can even then I can, of course, elaborate a lot more, but I also want people to read the book after all, right? As do I. So what sort of uh, audience did you imagine for this work? Um, I think in short, I believe the book is for everyone who enjoys reading and learning something new. I've been told that it's written in a very approachable style that it seems that ivory tower and university classroom, right? So I think beyond that academic audience that um, academic presses always have, um, I imagine that the book could be useful for public and regional institutions um, that are dedicated to preserve local histories and local museums, public libraries, or county and state historical societies, right? Um, because I think the book gives an example of how historical, like the shortcomings of historical documentation and memory preservation in those institutions um, in the past and maybe encourages contemporary um, historians on a local scale to, to correct it going forward. Um, so, But I also actually hope that it sparks discussions over the dinner table in families and um, maybe digging out housing deeds and abstracts to investigate more closely if their own properties actually have traces of white dominance that need to be corrected, like, you know, the housing deeds and so on and so forth with restrictive covenants. Um, Indiana has many of those things in the abstracts that still need to be corrected. So maybe my book uh, encourages them to to dig those out that you, you know, had like a long time ago, never fully read, never really bothered, and you 
you just put it to the other documents. So maybe um, people are willing to um, change and amend um, those deeds and abstracts. That's kind of what I'm hoping um, the book could uh, achieve. Wonderful. And so we've taken up a lot of your time. And thank you for being so generous with your time as well. Um, so I'll ask one final question here. What What are you working on now? What am I working on now? So um, I, give you, I can give you a very academic answer. <laughs> but maybe I'll give you two answers. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, so the geography of hate primarily focuses on this historical up to the present understanding of interactions in those small town communities. Um, and with my next project, I'm hoping to focus more on these interpersonal and intercultural challenges in the small town communities, because this project is uh, contextualizing contemporary immigration to small town Indiana in these conscious and unconscious structures that were erected to preserve the white identity that now is threatened by racial and cultural change, right? So I think that's where my interviews will feature more extensively than they have in the historical um, underpinning of, um, like in the geography of hate. Uh, so that is very academic-y. Um, outside of academics, I think um, uh, we have recently welcomed a, a baby girl into our family and she's taking up a lot of our time and attention. So maybe my next project uh, on that front is how to be a good parent <laughs> and how to how to make sure that um, if you make a mistake, you you're okay. You know, you learn from it and you you that's. <laughs> You, you'll do better next time um, to not have history repeat itself on a very personal level. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so those both sound like wonderful and worthy projects. Um, so I wish you the best of luck on both of those. I'll look out for that that work sort of contextualizing the idea of immigration within Indiana. That will be fascinating, I think, and to see more of these interviews that you've done. Uh, well, Dr. Jennifer Sunsnick, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I truly enjoy the book. Take care. Well, thank you so much, Romari, and uh, good luck. And if it's not too late, happy <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. Bye.